and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where I, along with a cast of fellow book and movie nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. A couple of warnings real fast. Yes, there will be some barnyard language. Yes, we will do all the spoiler things. We want to be able to talk in depth about the endings, so proceed with caution. You can listen to all of our past episodes if you go to kmmamedia.com, click on the Pages and Popcorn podcast link, and see a back catalog of all of our episodes. One last thing, if you want to support the show, of course, there's Patreon and buy us a coffee. Or you can do the best thing of all, rate and review us and tell your friends to listen. The more listens we get, the more likely I am to keep making shows. Okay, that about sums up the intro. Thank you once again for joining us on today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. It's Pages and Popcorn. First we read the book. Yeah, yeah. Then it's movie time. Yeah, yeah. Now it's time to talk. Yeah, yeah. And you know we're feeling fine. Cause it's pages and popcorn. It's pages and popcorn. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Today, Chris and I will be discussing women talking. We will be a man and a woman talking about women talking. (laughs) Yay. Yay. Okay, before I even tell you anything about this book or this movie, before recaps, before discussions, this is a trigger warning, content warning, right here at the very top of the show. We don't typically do these, but this time I felt it was very important to do a trigger warning. So here is your trigger warning for sexual assault and rape and institutionalized abuse and religious abuse and gaslighting and violence and child abuse all all the things all the things so i just i felt like that i felt like it needed to be said so yeah yeah also i cried a lot while reading the book and watching the movie had to take many breaks and it has been a difficult process for me to prepare for this episode. I know that normally this podcast is funny. We joke, we make we make jokes, we laugh. I don't think there's going to be too many jokes today, uh, honestly. So just settle in for that, I guess. That's that's where we're at. Okay. Women Talking is a novel by Canadian writer Miriam Taus. Taus describes this novel as an imagined response to real events. The events being the gas-facilitated rapes that took place on a Manitoba colony in a remote and isolated Mennonite community in Bolivia. Between the years 2005 and 2009, over 100 girls and women in this colony woke up to discover that they'd been raped in their sleep. These nighttime attacks were denied or dismissed by the colony's elders until finally it was revealed that a group of men from the colony were spraying an animal anesthetic into the victims' noses to render them unconscious. That's all real. 
The novel centers on the secret meetings of eight Mennonite women who, on behalf of the other women in the colony, must decide how to react to these traumatic events. They only have 48 hours before the colony men, who are away to post bail for the rapists, return. So here is a, a recap of the book. Women Talking opens with a note from the author in which she describes the novel as both a reaction through fiction to true life events and an act of female imagination. The true life events, as I've said, took pl place in the Manitoba colony, which was the remote Manitoba colony community in Bolivia. And I've already told you what had happened there. Again, though, when these attacks were discovered, the women were told that these were ghosts or demons, or God's punishments for their sins, or merely the result of, quote, wild female imagination. Eventually, it was revealed that a group of male colonists had been using this chemical spray to sedate them. And in 2011, eight men were convicted in a Bolivian court. Each one received a lengthy prison sentence. So that is where we are. This book takes place in a colony called, and I'm just going to apologize in advance. There's a lot of words that I had a hard time pronouncing. Oh, yeah, like definitely. Old German words, etc. This place was called Moloskosna, Skosna, Moloskosna, I guess. And so it's a it's a fictitious place in the aftermath of a similarly similar event. So again, this real thing happened, but the book is a kind of fictionalized response to it. Eight men believed to have committed the nighttime attacks have been captured and were locked in a shed. One of them is accidentally killed while being confronted by a group of angry colonists. Another is attacked with a scythe by Salome, one of the raped women. Peters, who's the bishop, calls for the city police to have the suspects arrested for their own protection. So now the men have gone to the city to post bail for the suspects so they can await trial at home. And this has given the women of the colony t the opportunity to forgive the men in order to guarantee everyone's place in heaven. Any woman who does not forgive the men, according to Peters, will be excommunicated. While the men are away, the women in the colony hold a referendum. On the ballot are three options, each one represented by an illustration. Forgive the men and do nothing. Stay in the colony and fight. Leave the colony. The votes are equal between stay and fight and leave, and therefore eight women, four from the Frizen family and four from the Lowen family, are appointed to break the deadlock. In the hours that remain before the men return, the women hold secret meetings in a hayloft to debate the issue and come to a decision. Over two days, June 6th and 7th, the women have a series of urgent debates on how to maintain their faith in light of the abuse, whether they will truly be denied entry into heaven if they refuse to forgive their offenders, what it means to forgive and to heal, the pros and cons of staying and of leaving. Each of the eight women has been the victim of multiple rapes. Ona is pregnant with a rapist child. Although the rapes are not depicted in the novel, their violent nature is evoked. Greta is wearing uncomfortable dentures because her teeth were knocked out during her attack. The women have scars from rope burns and from cuts. The women are interrupted by the owner of the hayloft at one point, an elderly and infirm Ernest. He asks the women if they are plotting to burn down his barn. Agatha, the eldest, answers, no, it's not a plot. It's just women talking. A man, Klaus, Marike's husband has returned from the city to gather 12 horses for auction. He also climbs in the hayloft and he is told that the women have just finished quilting. That evening, he gets drunk and he beats his wife. The novel is presented as the minutes of the women's meetings, which are taken by a man named August. He's the colony's male school teacher who's recently returned following a period of excommunication. 
August takes the minutes at the request of Ona, the subject of his unrequited love and his childhood friend. As the women cannot read or write, then they only speak this so for this form of deep old German. In addition to transcribing the women's conversation, he gradually reveals his own backstory. His parents had been excommunicated from the colony. He had studied in a university in England. He was arrested during a protest in London. He was imprisoned. His parents died. They disappeared. He has struggled with depression. And here he is now taking these notes. Ultimately, the women decide to leave the colony, along with any boys under the age of 15. However, they still risk being found out by the Coop brothers, who are guarding Greta's two beloved horses, Ruth and Cheryl. In order to secure the horses and ensure the brothers do not alert the men, two of the women in the barn loft, the two teenage youngest of them, Ajay and Netjay, lure the brothers to the hayloft with the promise of sex, arguing that their virginity is already lost. While in the act, Salome knocks the brothers out with the same belladonna spray that had been used on the women in the past and uses the spray also on a woman named Scarface Jans, who's a do-nothing woman for fear that she will also find a way to get to the city to alert the men. And then she uses the spray on her son Aaron, who does not want to leave the colony. Then the women leave in a convoy of buggies. August is left behind watching over the sleeping brothers, pondering the woman's sudden absence, his own life, his decisions anticipating the return of the colony men he reveals that the real reason his family was excommunicated was because at the age of 12 he began to bear a striking resemblance to the bishop he also understands that ona has asked him to take the minutes not because the women needed them because she perceived that he was suicidal and thought it would be he would be safe in the company of the women if he was performing a task okay so that's the book and then in the year 2022 they made a film woman talking is a 2022 drama film written and directed by sarah Polly. it is based on that novel by the same name and it features an ensemble cast that includes rooney mara claire foy jesse buckley judith ivy ben wishaw and francis mcdermott who also was a producer on the film the film adaptation is very, very similar to the book. So I'm going to just read it and then we will talk about the changes. So in the movie, a young woman sleeps alone in bed. We, from a God's eye slash bird's eye view, see her. There are visible bruises and wounds on her hips and upper inner thighs, injuries sustained from rape. In 2010, the women and girls on this unnamed isolated Mennonite colony have discovered that the men have been using the tranquilizer to subdue and rape them. The attackers have been arrested and imprisoned in a nearby city. Most of the men of the colony have traveled over there to that city to oversee the bail and have left the women by themselves for two days to determine how they will proceed. The women hold a meeting to decide whether to stay and do nothing, stay and fight, or leave. The vote is tied between staying and fighting and leaving. So 11 of the colony's women band together at a hayloft to come to a final decision. Although Scarface Jans is a do-nothing woman and she quickly leaves the meeting, becoming disillusioned with the discussion. She takes her hesitant daughter Anna and her resistant granddaughter Helena with her. August, the colony schoolteacher and one of the two remaining men, joins the women to record the meetings as none of the women were taught to read or write. The other man that is at the colony is Melvin, a transgender man who, after being raped, does not speak except to the young children. Therefore, he is left in charge of watching over them and warning the women of any outside developments. Salome, just back from a trip to gather antibiotics for her little daughter, who was assaulted at age three or four, remains adamant about staying and fighting, an opinion shared by Mejel, 
Ona, who is pregnant after being raped, also suggests that they stay and after winning the fight, create a new set of rules for the colony that will give the women equality. Marike, Greta's daughter and Ajay's mother, disagrees, believing that forgiveness is the only viable option. To defuse the conflict, Ona suggests that August create one document stating the pros and cons of leaving and another document doing the same for staying. The meeting is adjourned, and during the break, it is revealed that August is from an excommunicated family, but was recently granted permission to return so that he could be a teacher to the boys of the colony. He and Ona were good childhood friends, and he has romantic feelings for her. When the women are counted for the 2010 census by a random guy in a pickup truck blasting monkeys music, they learn that Klaus, Marike's abusive husband, will return that evening to collect more bail money. The meeting resumes. Ona and Mezel change their minds in favor of leaving. Salome remains insistent upon fighting, angrily confessing that she would rather kill the men that put her daughter in than put her daughter in harm's way. However, she changes her opinion after being reminded by Agatha, her mother, as well as Ona's, of the principles of their faith. The only remaining unconvinced member is Marike. An argument ensures between her and the rest of the women. It is revealed that she has forgiven her husband's abuse at Greta's urging. Greta, her mother. After Greta finally apologizes for this, Marike agrees to leave. The reasons for leaving are transcribed by August to ensure the safety of the children, to be steadfast in their faith, and to have freedom of thought. They decide to try to take boys aged 15 years and younger with them after they ask August if boys at the ages of 12, 13, and 14 are a danger. August says that they are a danger, but they can be taught. They prepare to leave at sunrise, concealing their plans from Klaus. August, at Una's behest, posts the document stating the pros and cons of leaving and staying on the walls as an artifact of the women's time in the colony. He also declares his love for Ona and gives her a map for the women to use. Before they can leave, Melvin tells Salome that her teenage son Aaron has fled and hidden. He's found but cannot be convinced to leave in enough time. Salome, breaking the rules of their departure, tranquilizes Aaron, forcing him to leave with them. She reveals this only to August, who understands and does not question her. He does ask her to look after Ona and reveals that he intends to kill himself once the women are gone. She instead asks him to teach the boys they're leaving behind properly in order to prevent any further violence and to give him purpose. Helena and Anna, Scarface's daughters, run away from their mother and join the rest of the women. August and Scarface watch as all the women depart in their buggies. Okay, Chris, how did you come to this book and movie combo? Well, I mean, I came to it really because I like a lot of the actresses in this, but mostly because it was up for an Academy Award and the Academy Awards were coming up and I was trying to watch as many of the movies before the Academy Awards as I could. And this one at the time was being shown free on one of the streaming services in anticipation of the Academy Awards. So I watched it. I watched it again last night just because it had been a month and a half or so. Tore me up both times. I was a wreck. First time I watched it, James came home and he didn't know what I was watching. And it was right at the end and I was crying my eyes out. And he was, what's going on? And then he watched it with me last night and we were both crying. This is, Kaylee is absolutely right about this. This is a, a tearjerker. And that's the most simple explanation, even though it's much more complicated than that. It's not a tearjerker. It, it'll wrench your heart. So that's how I came to it. Like you, I hadn't heard about the book, but I had seen that the movie was being nominated. And whenever there are things that are nominated that are based on books, because I do this podcast, they get into my orbit. When I see that things are, are up for awards, I like to read the books first and then decide whether or not they'd be good for the podcast or what have you. So when making our schedule for 
for pages and popcorn. I knew Chris had already seen the movie and had posted on Facebook that it was an important movie. I thought, well, okay, so I'll, I'll watch the movie. And I have to say, if if I I knew what it was about, but I didn't really know. I hadn't really internalized as much, you know, because it's one thing to know, oh, this is about trauma. It's another thing to really sit with the visceral re reality of that. I don't know if I would have pushed for us to do this. I, I'm not sure yet if I'm glad we did it or not. I might, I might come to that as we go through. But I read the book first, as I do, and then I watched the movie yesterday <laughs> and was also, like so I said- So we were both watching it yesterday. <laughs> I had to take multiple breaks. I When I finished, I had to just go sit and just just cry, just cry, just sit and yeah, cry. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and the thing was, so my daughter, who does not know the details of the story, but she asked me, you know, when, you know, what did you do today? Oh, I watched a very sad movie. Oh, is it based on a book? Yes, it's based on a book. She's like, well, which one was better? And I, I, I'm, and I know I'm kind of skipping a little bit here, but I'm just going to say that it's one thing to read a sentence in a book, you know, so-and-so died, so-and-so was attacked, so-and-so was raped. And you can kind of decide what your brain is going to do with that. If it's going to paint a picture, if it's going to, to make a visual, or if you're just going to concentrate on the words on the page, the words in the order that they are put in that sentence, the way the sentence appears in that paragraph on that page, left side, right side, top or bottom. And there's an, a, an ability I have when I'm reading for detachment. But when you're seeing the movie, when you're seeing the visuals and you have the soundtrack and I, I listen with these these huge headphones on, so there's like no other sound happening. It's impossible to have any sense of detachment. And so it's just such a much more visceral, haunting experience. So um, I found the movie sadder than the book. And yeah, I'll say this. I, I didn't cry once during the book. And I think that that's, and it's, as Kalia mentioned, it's virtually the same story, the book and the movie. It's almost identical. But there's two things about the book that kept me from getting as emotionally involved as the movie. You just stated one of them. It's much more visceral to watch the movie. Two is this book is written, like you mentioned before, there's a lot of words that are tough to get past. The names, a lot of things in here, the terminology. Now, um, she, Kaylee was right. The women in the book and the movie don't speak English, but they don't write it that way. They write it, of course, in English. And the book is written from the perspective of August. Who's, who says that he is listening to them speak in this is old German, translating, translating it in his head and then transcribing it in English. <laughs> right, right. Which I can't imagine. But that was part of it. And the second part is, I think I agree with the detachment in a book. And I think all people are pretty much mm -hmm. detached when they read a book because it's not the same as watching something. The movie, I personally can't say enough about this movie. I don't know that I would watch it again because it's very hard to get through. It tore me up and for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about. I'm not a woman, so I can't speak to that part of it, but there's a lot of reasons it tore me up. Um, it's so well written. I mean, it's incredibly well written, incredibly well acted. The cinematography, the choices they make on the shots they do in the movie, it is, and most of it, almost all of it takes place in the barn where they're having these meetings. It's almost like you're there. And so the movie tore me to shreds. The book, I, I liked the book, but it didn't hit me the way the movie did. Right. And I definitely want to circle back to to the, some of the, the, the pros and the cons, as the women would say, of the book and the movie. But 
I want to, since, you know, we do this on this podcast, I want to talk about the changes that were made in the adaptation. And I have a little list here. So there's a few changes. And I think on the whole that the, this is one of those adaptations that is very, very true to the book. Um, I think that the changes they made made sense for time, for reactions, for emotional beats. But there was a few things that I found interesting that they, they and I know why they had to leave it out, but I kind of wish they hadn't. So I want to talk about those ones first, those changes first. And the first yeah. one is there is more of Klaus interacting with the woman in the book. He actually does come in. He's like, what are you all doing? And they're like, oh, we're quilting. We're quilting. And some of us have gone to another colony to to uh, help with a birthing. We know? don't even see him really in the movie. Do you? I no. mean, casually in the distance, in but the we distance. don't really. Yeah, yeah. And OK, so on the one hand, I think that that's important because it definitely keeps the movie centered on the women, the women talking. It's this is the movie about the women. Okay. But I will tell you that him's intrusion into their space in the book, I found like that was kind of scary. There's not a whole lot of tension in this book because like the, the bad things have happened and they're talking and they're making a plan, but we really don't get anything after that either. So, but this is the moment of tension. Like he is there and he can hurt them and that is scary and what is he gonna do and all of that so like there's that but also they straight up they're lying to him with no and this is women who have spent a hundred or so pages talking about their faith and like the nature of sin and what is and isn't you know sinful and forgivable and all these things and and yet there is not really any hesitation to lie to him. And I found that really interesting. They said at one point that women have never asked men for anything. We don't even ask them to pass the salt. But in this moment, they're willing to lie because this is a, a higher thing. This is more important and, and it's a protection of each other. So you might not always advocate for yourself or you might not always take your own safety. But if you're taking care of the group, then people are more likely to bend the rules or to to act braver. You know, and I thought right, that was right. that was interesting. It also showed that they were rebelling in a way that they wouldn't have even really been able to articulate, you know, that they had yeah. and I love the fact that how they lied, they were like, we'll tell him we're quilting or we're helping with the birth. Those are women's things. He won't follow up because he won't understand. Which is right. In fact, when he came in in the book, which was not I read the book after the movie. I just finished the book uh, today, actually. When he came in, in that scene in the book, when he came in, he really went after August mm-hmm. for the most part. I mean, it was almost, it demonstrated there is fear in the movie about him, but it's not direct like it is in the book where he's there. There, what The fear in the book, um, I felt like his character, when he came into that barn and he really kind of went after August, kind of demeaning him as, why are you with women and you know, just treating him like he might treat a gay man, which was how I was seeing it. Um, he didn't need to threaten the women because he was already the devil and they were already subservient to him. So, yes, it creates fear that he might hurt the women, but there was no chance in that scene in the book of him threatening the women in any way because he'd they already been raped and, right. and tortured by the men of the of the well, community. And and he, and you're right. He he hardly even talks to them. He only right. talks to August because right. that's how, they're just not even human to him. They you're don't right, exactly. They, they don't even exist. It, it it's 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 such a power. They're just things. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So 
I again, I understand why they had like left that out, but it was like an interesting moment in the book that I I did appreciate. Uh, in similar ways, they um they left out the whole Coop brothers aspect and the two teenage girls using their feminine wiles, um, you know, and and. Basically. I think there was a little tiny bit of that in the movie. I remember right. There's a tiny scene of the boys and the girls looking at each other. That's about it. Yeah. But you could sense there was some sexual tension from between these teenagers, but that was really it. It was much more detailed in the book. And in the, and what I found interesting was about when the girls, they basically did stuff with the boys to, to, to get the safe, again, the safety of the group um, to get the, the Cheryl and Ruth and Cheryl, the horses back, et cetera. And their mother is just their their mothers, their aunts. They're they're at first they're horrified. How could you do that? That's so you know, don't don't be a whore, blah, blah, blah. And the girls are like, We've been raped. We have no virginity. Virginity is not a concept for us, you know? Yeah, and those those two girls in this movie, they were kind of hip. Mm-hmm. You know, not in the hip way that we would think normal teenagers these days would be hip, but they were way beyond the way these adult women pulled back and were afraid to say these girls were not that way. Um, yeah, they, the I, th- the movie. I feel like they had become disillusioned with what they had been grown up and been taught. Right. Already, exactly. You know, yeah. and yeah. I, I, and I think that there's a statement there kind of about how the youth can sometimes, you know, if you're not, if you're raised in a system, but you, you can, you can be like a fish where you're not even noticing the water, right. but, if, but you can also, I think, look around and go, well, this is the way it is, but is this the way it should be? And I, and so, yeah. No, Which I is interesting that- because none of them, the teenagers or the women, they didn't have any contact with the outside world. They couldn't read, they couldn't write. Mm-hmm. The, like Kaylee has said, they were treated like things by the men. So they, they were, they only spoke when they were spoken to, they were completely disconnected from reality as we know it. And yet these young girls were being kind of rebellious. At first I thought this isn't very believable, but I guess it would make sense I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know how it makes sense because without exposure to the real world where the young girls know there's more out there. Well, I think they... that they had, like, we had the thing where the census taker shows up in both the right, book and the right. movie. And there's like a guy in a truck and he's playing music and he's like, come out and be counted, come out and be counted. Right. And all the women are hiding in their houses or, or, you know, ignoring. And the girls are out there. They go out and they talk to him. And yeah. they're listening to the music, and they're and the song like... was "Daydream Believer" by the Monkees, which is a very upbeat song, and and also made... about somebody waking up and right, and true. a new reality. Yeah, it was a good choice. Tra- it was changed in the mo- in the book. It was California Dreaming. Thought that right. was that was kind of funny. So I think there's that, and then also. I, they, I think, and I don't have my copy of the book because I'm loaning it to somebody. But I feel like at one point they had referenced in the book that the Coop brothers had told them about something or shown them something else. And so I feel like th- there was they were getting some out because the Coop brothers were from the other colony, a nearby right. colony, a nearby colony, and that colony had an urgent care center. So like. Not all colonies are the same colonies. This colony was more insular than even the one down the road. Yeah, and the boys that- did know how to read or read and write and all this stuff. And they had, but I, I did like, I preferred the teenage girls in the movie mm-hmm. um, because you could see who they were. They were playing around in the background, which they say in the book, but when you see it, they're kind of being disruptive in the background. And they're kind of like, we don't, this is boring. We don't want to talk about all this stuff. It was very visceral to see those teen girls. And they 
truly acted like teen girls. Where they in the looked, book, they're more in the background. They looked so much younger than I had imagined in the in when I when I think of teen girls doing stuff like mm -hmm. these girls were in the in the book. I had imagined them looking older and yeah, they that's look because you're getting older that's what that's about <laughs> that's too well, well and my is. daughter's a tween right i yeah. i don't want to think of her in that right. yeah but they looked so young um, they did and i thought when i was before they really started talking in the movie i thought what are these young young girls you know they, they seem to be in a situation where would you have them in the room where you're discussing this kind of stuff then as we start to hear them talk and, and then it was clear, oh, they're, you know, 14, 15 Fif years 15 old. and 16. Yeah. They they yeah. identify 15 and Which 16 Which they looked later. 11 to me. Yeah, so. they really did. They yeah. definitely, yeah. But that's a sign of us getting older too. Right. Well, and I think that they were, they were. You think they were cast that way on purpose? I do. I also think that, you know, a lot of times in film, we see older people playing younger people, right? We see 24-year-olds playing high school students and stuff. Yeah, because I'm looking at their cast pictures or the actress pictures now, and they definitely look, you know, 16, 17. So. Yeah, I think that with between the makeup and the way they did their hair and like all of that stuff, right, they, they right. younged them down in, in yeah. a way. Okay, so then, um, okay, so here's a small change. The way that they were, the men were found out in the book, one woman forces herself to stay awake and catches a man climbing into her window, which mm -hmm. is, is actually, is closer to the truth of the real story that this is based mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, in the movie, they 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 say had this thing about somebody waking up and then the girls had seen his face etc cetera, etc cetera. so it was right, a, a right. small change but i think an, kind of an interesting one one of the other real small changes that isn't a big thing is that the do nothing woman scarface which i mean that's that's a great nickname by the way and but... that's played by francis mcdormand which yeah. when you see her name in the cast you go oh francis mcdormand just so you know very small part yeah very very small part yeah i don't like the fact that they say she starred in this i was like she was in four scenes and she left that barn loft real fast like yeah she was she's barely in the movie she had maybe five lines um so yeah but she's scarface and in the book they they drugged her too they sprayed that stuff on her so that she wouldn't be able to go off and warn and in the movie they did not do that in the movie it was a i like that i'd like that because her face as they're going away mm -hmm. says a lot yeah, about her, her reluctance or her refusal to participate. Well, and what I liked though was that in the movie she had her daughters, and then her daughters escaped from her and joined the women. Oh, that was so women. great! And and when they are climbing up, the, you can see that one has this huge welt on her face. Yeah. Like James and I just jumped off the couch when that happened. We both started clapping at the same exact moment. It yeah. was that was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, because I, her daughter is she has a, a damaged in her she, her eye is damaged. Like she's I don't know if she's totally blind or half blind. I, I it mm -hmm. seems to me like she was totally blind, but they never really explained it. Yes, and I think that it was implied that that was an injury that was sustained by the right. yeah by the men by the men or uh, they they kind of implied through this the book and the movie that some of these kids were damaged by inbreeding. Yeah, because they kept that. talking about brothers and sisters and uncles and this and that having sex with each other. So okay, so then there's there's three big changes. I've gotten through my little ones. My my big changes. The first one is the narrator, the role of the narrator in the book. Mm -hmm. We are narrated by August, who is a man. He's a failed farmer, which is the worst insult apparently <laughs> you, can, you can say to somebody, and uh, and he he's there. 
he definitely has affectionate feelings for Ona. If if that part hadn't been there, if he wasn't lusting after Ona and, and very clearly says that he's in love with her in the book, I would have read him as a queer coded character. Uh, hands well, down. I, I agree. I read him. I read that as queer code from the beginning. I don't think it's fair to say he lusted after Ona. He was in love with her. Fair, fair, fair. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good difference. Um, he definitely was in love with her. And so, okay. But hey, bisexuality is a thing. But he was right. definitely <laughs> not the the type of man that the colony was going to, you know. Right, and I thought right. that was interesting because he'd also had these parents who were excommunicated because they tried to change things and they were like communists, you know. And they like, were they, radicals. They yeah. were radicals. And and then he, they were excommunicated. He went out in the world. He was like living. He got educated, and he's the the queer coded character. And I thought that's that is and fascinating. He, he stole a stole a horse that sent him to prison. And <laughs> well, got, he he rescued. Well, okay. He well, he said in the book, "I stole a horse." And the truth of it is that he was trying to rescue a horse. He rescued a horse, and then he, he, he stole a policeman's horse. His little hippie commune, like adopted this horse and like loved on this horse and like used the horse and the horse was all happy. And but what like, I'm saying is the queer code, it yes. continues there where he's sent to prison and is yes. molested by men. So yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he is our narrator, right? He's the one who right, can right. read and can write and he's taking the notes in the movie. Aja, Aja, I, I had such a hard time. I wrote my little thing. The, all the names Oja. are hard. Oja, I think is how they said it. Oja yeah. is one of the teen girls. She's the narrator. And there's bookending. And the very beginning, she's talking to somebody. She says, before you were even born, we had this to This all decide. happened before you were born. Yeah, yeah. all of this stuff. So you kind of know, okay, th th this is the framing device. So the framing device is different. The narrator is different. Their narrator is there at the beginning once or twice. And, and, and then at the end as opposed to the book where he's constantly like putting in his own ideas and thinking about right, what they're right. saying and making his own judgments. And which, because he's translating, it's, it's a lot more in his voice than it is in anybody it, else's. It is. And so yeah. I, I love so what's your that take change. on that. I loved it. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. No, no, I agree. The change was great and, and necessary. And mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with uh, some of it being through his, and we could get into that, but I, I, it'd be interesting if we looked up why the director, Sarah, Sarah Polly. Polly, made that choice. Was, does, was it because she goes, I don't want this to be seen through the through a man's lens. I want it to be seen through the women. I don't think it really matters. I was just curious. But it, brilliant in the movie that it's the women. It's really women talking mm -hmm. to each other. And he's just in the background. In fact, when he does speak, the women chide him and say, you don't have any place to be talking here. And he apologizes profusely for it. He's yes. a real he's a really sympathetic, sympathetic character. Don't get me wrong. I cried my eyes out over him, too. But the, that change was necessary. Yeah, Very, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And then we have the, the ending. The ending was different. And the yeah. ending of the book is that they yeah. they, they they leave. <laughs> but it is. It is again because it's from August, this man's perspective. He's right. watching them leave. Right. Okay. And it's like they say, we're going to leave, and then they leave. That's it. And they leave, and that's it. That's it. In the movie, they say, we're going to leave. And then we have 11 minutes of them leaving, and we are yeah. in there. We're, the cameras are close to the yeah. wagons as they're loading and they're putting children. And okay, you hold this child. We have room for another right. child over here. And like, you and know, they're and then, carrying the chickens and all that. I mean, it's brilliant in the movie. It's and, busy, it, and it's, your it's, heart just swells when this happens in the movie. Kinetic. In the book, you go, eh, whatever. 
and then as as it's pulling at the, as they as they are leaving the camera pulls back and you see just how many of them there are and it's a lot more hopeful even before the epilogue of there's a, now a Ona's baby is just being held somewhere in some field. And, but and didn't you find that strange? You go through this whole movie with like, what, 12 women basically or so. And you think, and they, they occasionally in the movie, they go and they send the young girls to go talk to all the other women in the, in the community to tell them that they're going to leave and blah, blah, blah. But at the end, when they pull back and you see all these women and all children and there were boys with them and uh, the horses and the, but then you go, Oh my God. Yeah, it was so much more moving. You, yeah, initially, I thought, well, when they're going to show twenty women walking away, but no, it was crazy it was what they epic. showed. Yeah. And, epic, and and they're not alone. Like that's the thing. They're like they're they're a mass. They're a community that's going away. And right. and there's this distinction made early on about leaving versus fleeing, because right. you know, and those words they have different connotations. And they they were not fleeing. They were leaving. They were taking stuff with them, which is very fleeing is when you run with only the clothes on your back, right? Leaving right. is more intentional, and it is it. It yes, it was very yeah. Very fleeing good. is when you run because there's danger and you don't want to get caught and you don't care what what uh, is left behind. Leaving is when you say, "I'm taking my stuff. You're not following me. We don't need you anymore. We're out of here." Yeah. So there's a lot of wordplay in the movie like that, like leaving versus which I really appreciated. Leaving versus fleeing. They're, they play on the words a lot, which is strange for a, a group of women who can't read or write, but. Um, you know, they play with words and they correct each other on words all the time. And I found that fascinating. I think that that it, it makes a certain amount of sense to me because these women have memorized the Bible. And so you don't have to be able to read the Bible. If you have been told the verses and the language and especially the older language and in oh, and Bible, they memorize it without reading it, though. Well, exactly. But you still know the meanings of the words, even if you don't couldn't find them on a page and mostly what sermons are is some is is the bishop or whoever taking a verse and then going into it and telling you what it means and and the and the word choice matters i remember in in church being in church where they would talk about the difference between and this word is important and the reason why this verse means what it means is because this word is this word like that that's god's word mm -hmm. this is the word so it made sense to me that there would be a little bit of um like a pedantic, no, say leave, don't say flee, and you know all of that kind of stuff. Because... Yeah, it is kind of a biblical way of thinking. And but they also say in the book, one of the women I forget which says, "Well, what do you mean? We may have been told what the Bible, but the men are the ones that told us what the Bible said. So yeah. how do we know they were telling the truth? We don't even know that." Which so is there a, was... a huge leap to even question that at that point, too. Oh yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'd love to talk about the religious aspect of all this because I think yeah. it's really, really, really important. We have I have one more big change before we move past this, and that is the character of Nettie slash Melvin. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in the book, Nettie was one of the women who had been raped, and Nettie decided, well, you know what? Who doesn't get raped in this colony? Men. Men. So I'm yeah. going to be a man. My name is now Melvin, but also so traumatized, will only talk to the children. And takes care of the children. Now, taking care of children is not a man's job, but Nettie has decided to be Melvin. I am Melvin now. I'm a man. Therefore, I can't be attacked. I 
don't know if this would have actually stopped any of these horrible men from attacking oh no melvin at Probably all just excited them more actually but that that was that now in the movie they they go out of their way to say nettie was always melvin and then Nettie became Melvin, and Nettie has this moment of "thank you for calling me by my real name" when someone calls him Melvin, and which and broke my heart. Yeah, it's 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 really well done. I think it's two different stories, though, and I I think it's an interesting choice because in the in the book, the idea of changing your gender is for protection and for power, and that made me think of things like the underground girls of Kabul and the idea of, of gender power politics. Whereas in the movie by, by saying, well, Nettie was always Melvin and now it's a trans story. It's a different story. And I'm not saying that one is a better story or one is more important or that one needs to be talked about less or more or whatever, but it is an interesting choice well, to so tell you, two different stories. You and I had talked about this before we did the show and before I read the book. And you were saying this because we talked about it on our other podcast. So, number one, I think this was a conscious choice mm -hmm. by the director to do this because of the climate we live in, which made it a more important story. But number two, it says in the book, and this is the part that it says, it says, Thank you, Melvin, Agata says. Melvin smiles for the first time in 100 years at this, the first appellation of her new name. So that's pretty much all they say in the book. But that intimates that Melvin is transgender, because why would you be so excited by your name? Can you read that sentence again, though? Yeah. Thank you, Melvin, Agata says. Melvin smiles for the first time in 100 years at this. The first appellation, and I'm not sure what the word appellation means. I have to look that up. Application? No, it's appellation. Appellation. Okay, go ahead. Keep of, her, of her new name. Of her new name. Right. So at that but... point, August is still misgendering Melvin. I I, I think that... Well, yeah. no. Uh, uh, Melvin at her new name. This is a Melvin internal thought. Melvin at her new name. So I get what you're saying, that she's still thinking of herself as female. And no. maybe the melt. I think what I'm saying is that being glad that your new identity is being acknowledged does not is not limited to a transgender experience. So no, but I think it, there's a hint here that that's it. I think the author didn't take it far enough, but I think that was the hint. Hmm. And I, you'd have to talk to the author about why it was written this way, and talk to the director about why it was written that way in the movie. But I think it was. Now maybe I'm just very susceptible to transgender stories, and I'm reading something into this. But could you be. could read you could read that either way. But I, in the movie, when they say Melvin, when Melvin comes up and they say they call Melvin, Melvin. by his name, Melvin, mm -hmm. and not what well, I forget what his name was previously. Nettie, you can this actress pulled this off perfectly with the expression and the emotion on her face when Melvin was was spoken. I, I do think that the, there's a valid reading both ways. I think that we, we disagree on the reading in the book, but the reading in the movie is very clear. The actor is actually named August Winter and is a non-binary person who this is their first um, acting credit as a non-binary Okay, well, person. I meant nothing by saying she. No, no, I, I know, know I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, and Nettie was female, so it makes perfect sense, but I'm just going to say... 
I ha found a really interesting interview with August Winter on navigating the industry as a non-binary actor. They came out as non-binary during the pandemic. And so if you look on their IMDb page, you will see past credits with a different name, a female name. So it's, okay. it is very interesting. And I will definitely have that interview in the show notes that are part of the blog links that we always put for every episode because i think it's it is definitely relevant but yes and it, so, ma it makes you question uh, how is the transgender issue being dealt with in these kinds of communities mm -hmm. is it is it just the women kind of like it seemed in this movie the women understanding it behind the scenes and dealing with it in a very subtle way and nothing that should never be spoken about among the whole colony. I mean, one of a couple of them, there was a conversation and I apologize. I can't, I couldn't, some of, I got lost with the names, but there was two of them who were talking. Yeah. And she was like, is she always going to do this? Is this a right. thing now? You know, right. that was like one of the young girls asking that. Trying to figure it out and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think that was a sign of the young girl not understanding that there's such a thing as transgender, which how would how would you these know women know yeah. what transgender is? Yeah, exactly. And so for them, I think it is it is like the simpler answer is, well, you know, if if my gender is the thing that is putting me in danger and I yeah, can get rid of my the gender, yeah. then maybe. Yeah, But you're right. That would, in my opinion, that would just entice the men more. But. Well, and according to a couple things that i read online in the real mennonite community where this happened some of the rape victims were young boys as well mm -hmm. as young yeah i'm girls. sure so i'm sure that's interesting horrific i mean not interesting in that that's not realistic that's very realistic yeah it's just interesting that uh, it wasn't mentioned at yeah. all so those are like the main changes. <laughs> and big uh, given and those changes, I mean, you and I agree. This yeah. book and the movie are very, sometimes we do these shows and the book is way over here and the movie's way over here. Mm -hmm. These were like right up next to each other. They were yeah. very, very similar. Which I think is really good. I think that if you had changed it dramatically, then it it would lose something so yeah, much. And Sarah Polly won Best Adapted Screenplay at, yeah. at the Oscars for this movie. I, I also think that this is one of those cases where the movie, I think, does a better job of telling the story than the book. Oh, they're totally telling agree. they're telling the same story. And a lot of times when the movie is vastly different, it's because they have a different point, right? Or right, they're focusing right. on different themes or if they've decided to really change the setting. Or they're or trying they're, to make money or whatever. Or whatever, yeah. But in this case, they're like, no, this story is really important. Let's tell this story. And then they found ways to tell the story in a very, very, very yeah, compelling Yeah, I think way. the movie is far superior to the book. I think the movie is the winner and here in my eyes. One of the ways that they made the movie so compelling was the use of color and the lack of color and the color saturation that was used. So mm -hmm. part of it is because the lighting, you know, they're in this barn and whatnot. But also even outside of that, because of the Mennonite community, and the black dresses and the white hats and like there's you know very similar scope this is not a colorful movie this is not a vibrant uh -huh. eye-popping appealing movie and it almost leads you when i am imagining certain scenes in my head now as i'm like thinking about them they're in black and white even though i know that the movie wasn't black and white but there are scenes that were shot very close to black and white and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think that not only does that make it very timeless 
But it also, I think symbolically, is talking about the shades of gray because this whole discussion is about nuance, you know, and what does it mean to forgive or not forgive? And and are things black and white? Can we just say all the men are evil because they did this? Or is there room to say the men who did this were raised in this system? They're victims, too, because they were like, you know, I and the women talk about those things. They talk. They're, they're not just knee jerk reaction, black and white thinkers. They exist in this state of gray. I, I found it. Just I think I think really it's also represents the drabness of their lives. That's how mm -hmm. I looked at it. Um, because at the very end, the end scene where they're going off, they show the bright sunset in the in the background. And in scenes in the certain other scenes in the movie, like when Melvin is playing with the kids in the fields, it's very colorful. So there's a you know, I think it also represents this is not a life what we're living now mm -hmm. as we're talking about it. So it's very dark and very black and white. But that life is out there when they look at the stars, when they look at the sunset or the, the sky as they're moving forward, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's a sunrise at the end. They, sunrise, they're leaving yeah, at, sorry. Which is which is optimistic, right? You right, know, it's a right, different right. it's they have the whole day ahead of them. The the right. sun is coming up for them. So yeah, the, the like you said, the cinematography, the color choice was really good. Yeah. So let's talk about the religious aspect a little bit. I liked that the director deals with this religious thing in a serious way. It's not like it's super exotic. There's not a lot about this particular religion. Like, you know what I mean? They don't sit down and, and talk detailed about what, what is a Mennonite and yada, yada, yada. But it is more about like the women talking about their faith, which is a little bit different and, and, and they're, their desires for like the new colony and all of that things. It would have been really easy to make this just about religion. And I think that by making it set in this religious scope, but it is religion as the tool of the patriarchy or patriarchy is the tool of the religion. They feed upon each other and it's about power dynamics. Does that make sense? And I think. Well, it does, but I look at it a little differently. So I think it's totally about religion. Because none of this could have happened without religion. Now, you you know very well that I'm an atheist. I was a Christian when I was young, and I'm an atheist now. And I would have probably turned this right off if they got into the details of the Mennonite religion or any other religion. I don't care. I don't look at the Mennonite religion, Christian religion. I don't look at any religion as any different than any other religion. They're all the same. It's all a scam. It's all to control people. It's all a power grab. It's all about money and power and control and, uh, you know, uh, um, subservience and all of that. That's all religion is to me. Now, I know people listening are not all going to agree with that. But the reason I love this movie so much was because it didn't dive into the specifics of the religion because again, who cares? It's not about that. It's about these women could have been controlled by Catholic, the way boys are controlled by Catholic priests of uh, the way women are controlled in, in the Mormon religion. You know, it, it could go on. You could go on and on and on with every religion and, and get this control. Now this is a, this is a extreme example of it. The women were not allowed to read or write. They were raped and molested and sexually abused by the men. But the conversations, these the, the one thing I thought that was super interesting was the conversations these women had with each other about not, they did have conversations about God and heaven and hell and religion and were they going, I mean, one, one of the main conversations throughout this movie is if we do this, if we leave, or if we stay and fight, or if we do this, is are we not going to get into heaven? 
Are, is God going to reject us? Are we sinning? Are we this and that? So they touch on all those things. But underneath all of that is, I don't want to be raped anymore. I don't want my children to be abused anymore. I will. In fact, I think it's Salome in the movie who says, I reject uh, heaven. I re if it means I go to hell for the rest of my life, I will. If, I, if, I, if one more man comes near my child, I'm going to kill them. And I won't care if I go to hell, which causes some of the other women to gasp and say, don't say that. But they kind of feel that way too underneath, but they've just been programmed for so long to say, this is who we are. We believe in God. We believe. And they sing hymns through the movie. They're obviously spiritual women, mm -hmm. but the point of all of this is that it, it's not, I, I, I know I'm not a woman. Everybody out there knows I'm not a woman. I don't identify as a woman. This touched me, not just because of what was happening to these women, but because it happens to gay people all the time i was you know held back and rejected by everybody in my life until the age of 20 when i came out and i started to have my own voice and i at that point i did the same thing these women were saying was fuck you i'm out of here i'm leaving i'm not doing this anymore if you follow me you follow me if you don't you don't but i don't care that's which is what they were saying so it, it didn't just represent religion to me it represented even though their oppression against gay people is a very religious based as well. It just represents oppression and the silencing people who have a voice, who have ideas, who want to think, who want to be, who want to interact and control. Agreed. And, you know, literally what they said at the end, what they wanted was they wanted to be able to practice their faith. They wanted their children to be safe and they wanted to be able to think. They wanted to think. I thought, I love that. Yeah. 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 But I, I liked the fact that this wasn't just about, you know, the Mennonite religion is evil. The end. It was about like right. saying, systems of oppression that gaslight people and are, you know, fueled by power, hungry, horrible right. ideologues exactly. are bad. Like that is what this is about. And and, you, and they, this is comparable to lots of other religions and organizations and societies throughout the world. That's I thought it was kind of a generic painting in that way even though it's specific to Mennonite, like you said, since they didn't talk about the specifics of the Mennonite faith, mm -hmm. it's it's a generalized view. And there's something in writing where they talk about when you're writing a story, um, it's, it's counterintuitive, but it's very true. The more specific, the more universal. Right. And it, it doesn't sound like it should be true, but it is like it, you get very specific about one thing and the core elements of it, fear, hope, anger, pain, joy, those are universal emotions. And so you you get into a, a broader spectrum and you can touch more people, even though you're getting very specific. Like I'm not a Mennonite, but this resonated with me because, you know, I, and you know, you're not a woman or a Mennonite and this resonated with you. So like, right, it's right. just, you know, we can all bring to it. So yeah, no, I, I appreciated that. Let's see here. I also, I think this is kind of interesting. The point of them leaving was not to reject their religion, right? Or to, mm -hmm. it was to reestablish it in a firmer, more coherent moral basis, which that idea by its very definition is consistent with basically the Christian tradition mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, like going to Protestant, Protestantism, Protestantism, being a Protestant is all about, <laughs> thank you. It's all about protest, right? It's like, right, right, it's, exactly. that, the whole idea was to get away from, 
you know, they even have a conversation about it. Wouldn't God want us to remove ourselves from this mm -hmm. situation? And wouldn't he want us to go form a new community and worship and have faith in that area? So they even exactly. talk about how they can serve God by they have two main discussions. We can serve God by getting away from this or we can serve God by staying here and, and saying nothing, which they don't decide, obviously, to do. Thank God. And they also talk about like we've been told we have to forgive them, but right. co coerced forgiveness isn't valid. And then that right. would be a lie. Like, and God would know. So they always give the opposite point when someone says, "What well, shouldn't we forgive the man?" The other there's the other point is given like, "Well, is forgive is, is it really forgiveness if we're forced to do it, or if we're doing it not because we really forgive, but because we're going to stay here and we have to live with them?" And then so that... later they say, "Isn't forgiveness sometimes a form of permission?" And, right. Oh my God, that gave me as somebody yeah, who has that's been. That's a great line. I mean, it it is. It is. It. Uh, I get chills just even thinking about it because it's true. When you forgive your abuser, you give them permission to abuse you again. So there was uh, there was there's a couple of quotes that I'm I want to put into this mm -hmm. podcast. This is one of them, and it's talking about pain. This. I literally, when I heard it, I just immediately started writing it down because I couldn't believe how well it was written. And this is, I think it's Mahal's mother, which is, Mahal's mother is... Agatha? Agatha. It's so hard to keep these names straight. But anyway, she says to the women, she goes, we are wasting our time by passing this burden, this sack of stones from on to the next, by punching our pain away. Let's absorb it ourselves. Let's inhale it. Let's digest it. Let's process it into fuel. I thought that was an incredible, and that's word for word. Uh, it's a little slightly different in the book. I don't like the quote in the book. It's not written very well, but this rewrite for the movie is very, very powerful. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to read my second one just so I don't forget to do it. This was from Greta, whose horses are called Ruth and Cheryl. Cheryl. Um, and she, a couple of times in the movie, she shares stories about these horses. Basically, she's telling the other women, when I would take these horses down the path, there were dogs that scared the horses and they would jump and they would, you know, go off the path. And she says, I was kind of scared to be with these horses because of this, this thing would happen. And then she says, it, and so the, the image of her when she's saying this in the movie is she's in the buggy with the horses in front of her and there's a long dirt road or dirt path ahead of her. And then she says, it was only when I learned to focus on the road far ahead of me and not on the road immediately in front of me that I learned to feel safe. So that's about, you know, not focusing on what's happening to you in the moment, but looking at the future and the long run. And what I just thought, I think the writing, uh, the, I, the writing is at times difficult in the book because it's almost mm -hmm. like it's a different language. But the writing in the movie is just, I, I'm, I'm glad she won for adapted screenplay because the writing is brilliant. It is. It is. And and I knew that that line was going to reach you because you and I are both activists. And I was mm -hmm. like, that's that's like our core thing, man. Yeah, like, okay, yeah. right now it sucks, but we're looking ahead. We're planning right. for a better tomorrow. Right. Just to kind of go back to what you were saying, though, a second ago about how the women like and they argue with each other and stuff. Uh, you know, you've seen it on stickers. I think I have at least two tank tops that say empowered women empower women. And the opposite is true. Oppressed women oppress women. And so, right. you know, hurt people hurt people, right? That whole right. idea. And so when they they would argue with each other and they would lash out at each other, it felt 
very real. It felt yeah. very authentic. And I, you know, I've known women like a lot of these women in my real life. And I just, and like how one of the women has, one of the women has a panic attack at one point and the other women are like, Ugh, you didn't have it any worse <laughs> than the rest of us. Why, how come you're so dramatic? But it's like, everybody's dealing with their trauma in different ways and right. no one way is more or less valid than the other ways. Some people like Salome went after the man. She like knocked that door down and had a scythe and like was murder. She was going to kill the man who had raped her three-year-old or any at of the, the same, men. At, but at the same time, Salome, I, I thought in that scene where Salome went after the character who was having the panic attack, it, it was very telling about her because in a lot of ways, she's not dealing with any of this. She she says at one point she's going to go back and be with it uh, with Klaus. No, that's that's uh, Marike. Okay, who Marike is the one I'm thinking of. Marike is married Salome to Klaus. Is the real negative one in the in the movie? No, that's Marike. Marike is the one who's very cynical. Salome's the one who goes back at the very end and and takes the gun. So from... Marike is with Klaus. Yes. Okay. So she's the one that's uh, in a lot of ways, you know, hiding her pain mm -hmm. or not dealing with it, even mm -hmm. though she's very mouthy and opinionated and thinks that she's the most advanced person in the room. Yes. Um, yeah. She, she's the quintessential hurt people, hurt people kind right. of woman here. And she's because... lashing out to hurt people because she's hurt. Yes. And, right. and her, her arc part of it is that her husband, you know, is beats her, which he's not the only one, but he definitely does. And her mother apologizes to her at one point because and her mother's the one who says I love some, that. sometimes forgiveness is a form of permission and it's like i i showed you that this is what was normal and expected and then that's what you live with and now that's what my granddaughters are going to live with and i'm sorry and that was wrong and i'm sorry and that's the moment when marika is like okay because she was waiting for that moment. She was waiting yeah. for her mother to say something like to that. To acknowledge. Sometimes we just need to be acknowledged that that it's bad. You know, that, that the reminded me of bad. My mother had a really hard time with my grandmother because my grandmother, my mother was in a, you know, she's from a different generation. My mother's not alive anymore, but she was born in 1923. So she went through relationships with men. And my grandmother, of course, was older than her. So my grandmother would always tell my mother, you do whatever the man wants you to do. You feed the man when he comes home. You're there for him. You, you know, you lay down for him, all this stuff. And my mother was as meek as I thought she was. She was much more rebellious than my grandmother. So for, if my grandmother had just once said to my mom, you know, you don't have to take this, they would have had a much better relationship. Yeah. That, that kind of institutionalized trauma and that the, the, the cycles of domestic violence are so powerful and so hard to break away from especially in religious circles and and you know i read recently and you probably read this too that uh, trauma is genetic it, it gets in it's it, it's encoded into your genes in a way so that mm -hmm. you may have a grandmother or grandfather that was traumatized or because of a b or c and now you even though you're not in the same situation you are depressed or traumatized um, and they're saying it's encoded into your genes. It's That's interesting. Why it's called um, generational trauma. And I right, think right. that one of the first times that we as a society started realizing that when we were having the children and more specifically the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors were still living with that trauma, even right. though they. Right. Exactly. In it. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a thing.
Okay. So, so speaking of trauma and women's trauma, this is an interesting little blurb that I read and I'm going to share it here. It's, it's, it has to do with the feminism of this movie and book. Okay. So women talking arrives in a wave of other me too films. She said, and tar being the latest installations, what feels markedly different about women talking is that while its counterparts look back, she said on Harvey Weinstein, bombshell on Roger Ailes, the assistant on toxic misogynistic work culture in Hollywood, etc. This film looks ahead. It's neither bent on revenge as like promising young woman or interested in villains like in Tar. Though occasional shots flash to the horrific attacks, and though many of the women are clearly still traumatized by what they've been through, the women and women talking are determined to look ahead, not only to the immediate future, but further, both literally and figuratively down the road. And then there's this line that was in the book and the movie. Did you know that the migration period of some butterflies and dragonflies is so long, this is Una talking, that it is often only the grandchildren mm -hmm. who arrive at the intended mm -hmm. destination? Yeah, that was great. Yeah. And I think that that's good. I think we need the Me Too movies that look back because there's definitely a place for vengeance and for anger and for revenge. But we also need the ones that look forward and it's, you know, that that have more nuance. This movie is so inspirational. I can't say enough how inspirational this movie is. The bravery of these women, whereas sometimes I go, would they really do this? But I was overcome with their the the emotion of their bravery and hoping hoping because i hadn't seen the end of the movie yet please please get out get out and do it it's without the men coming i always you know you know how movies tend to have oh look at this shock ending i'm like well, let this brilliant movie have some ending where the men are after them with guns or something and make them come back and it and it doesn't and we're spoiling that but um the the, the inspiration i felt from this movie was uh, unbelievable so I got to bum you out now a little bit. I'm already on the verge of tears. So go right ahead. <laughs> Unless but, it's just angry bitterness you're going to give to me then. No, but in the real life, Mennonite. Oh, here we go. I knew it. It's the, the terrible situation developed along less predictable, but more complicated lines. It was a group of male community members who followed up on the women's initial accusations. So some men believed them. They tracked the nighttime movements of one of the accused rapists. They caught him sneaking in the window. They got him admission of guilt, the name of other predators. They led to this arrest. The convicted men were given sentences of 25 years. The women didn't leave the community. They're there now. <clears throat> and as the date of the release and return of their attackers grows ever closer. So, so the men are about to get out and the women are still there. Yes. This is why I didn't go. I, I thought I should go look at the real story. And this is why I didn't, because I figured this is what it would be. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, uh, you know, and you have to you have to question again in the movie. Why would you change the truth of it? But I think there's a absolute validity to changing the truth of it, because the people this movie is going to inspire is much more important than sharing the truth that maybe these women didn't or we're not strong enough to leave. Movies have a real way of emotionally impacting people and it doesn't have to be reality. Often you don't want it to be reality because this, the, the fiction of this movie will inspire other people to create a powerful reality for themselves. So it's much more important that that happens than 
it, you make it into a documentary and, and say what really happened. I mean, I think both of us like our 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 sci-fi fantasy to be inspirational, right? We're both right. Star Trek fans. Right, right. <laughs> so, exactly. You know, yes. Um, I think that, and also I think a lot of times prestige films, which this is definitely a prestige film, and films about trauma, especially women's trauma, do end on a sad note. And right. and that's valid, but I mean, then you gotta like go into it and you just you're like, Oh my god, I'm just gonna I'm setting myself up to be right. to be traumatized. And then you gotta like like who's gonna watch this movie? Are we preaching to the choir? Like I already know that it's like life is shitty for people. So do I need right. to like spend dollars right. to have someone tell me that this is shitty? No, not necessarily. So the fact that there is this optimistic ending, I mean, thank God. I you know Thank God is all I can say. I mean, were you thinking that as you get closer to the end, what's this going to end up being? Okay. So as I was, cause I read it first, right? So I knew, I knew that the movie was going to probably stay very, you know, what the book did with the ending. Right, right. But as I was reading the book, I was like, they can't, I, this is, this is the naivete of me. They can't do nothing. That makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> See, so, in my mind, I was like, the most obvious thing is to do nothing. I was like, they can't, but where are they going to go? Because they don't even speak the language of the places around right, them. True. So, like, That's logistically, a huge part of it. like, okay, and the movie put them somewhere else. Like, we don't know exactly, right? So, right, there's a right. little bit of like hand waving with that. Okay. So then I was like, are they going to fight? Like, Salome wants to fight, but then what do you do? Are you just going to kill the men? That doesn't seem right. So, I was really struggling because I, in my head, I couldn't, I could not, me, Kalia, me, could not imagine staying and doing nothing. Like, I, that oh, is yeah, just, yeah. And, but that in reality. But can you imagine as someone who doesn't know how to read, who doesn't know how to write, who doesn't know even know yeah. where they are? They didn't yes. even know where they were on the planet. They, yes, they got them. They, they asked got for a world. Could we have a globe? Maybe that would help yeah. us at one point. It's like, oh, no. And, and then, then August gave, was like, I'll give you a better map. <laughs> he gave you a more centralized local map and then uh -huh. told them how to kind of navigate by the stars. But really, you and I both know, even though this was set in modern time, which makes maybe it's worse set yeah. in modern times that they're going to run into a lot of problems but you know you don't have to deal with that in the movie you just see them go off into the sunrise yeah. and 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 i think that's appropriate yeah the because only, it's about hope it's not about reality the only thing that that kind of mars that for me is that it becomes almost a fairy tale like yeah. once mm. upon a time there were princesses and, and beautiful girls and they were beset upon by evil monsters and then they were brave and then they left. Well, then... except that this is based on a true story and they could have done this in reality. This could be the reality that happened. Well, These, those know women they... could have chosen to leave. But they didn't. But in another situation, in another you know, state or country or whatever in a, a similar situation, the women might have said, screw you and left. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. I think it's a way of, of telling, instead of facing the harsh reality of what happened with these women, it's a way of saying you can choose this other path. And that's what movies and books do for people is it tells you this is the possibility, not the reality, yeah. the possibility. Uh, do you have that quote? Because I didn't, I don't know where it is in my notes. Where Which someone, one? One, of, one of them says something about it's better to live in hope than to stay in hate and fear or something along those lines. And I thought, uh, Una, no, I didn't. Una's mark the that one, one that says that, but I can't um, remember. 
I marked a couple of others in here. This one, none of us have ever asked the men for anything, a goddess states. Not a single thing. I think you said part of this. Not even for the salt to be passed. Not even for a penny or a moment alone or to take the washing in or to open a curtain or to go easy on the small yearlings or to put your hand on the small of my back as I try again for the 12th or 13th time to push a baby out of my body. Isn't it interesting, she says, that the one and only request the women would make of the men would be to leave. And then they all laugh. Yeah. (laughs) They just, yeah. So- I just feel like it's important to say here, women exposed to domestic violence are twice as likely to experience depression, twice as likely to abuse alcohol, 16% more likely to have low birth of a baby, and 1.5 times more likely to acquire HIV and contact syphilis infections, chlamydia, or gonorrhea. Also, 38% of all murders of women globally were reported as being committed by their intimate partners. Women who attend religious service at least once a week were 44.2% less likely to report domestic abuse Mm -hmm. against a partner. In the United States, 85% of domestic violence victims were known to be women. Domestic violence against women occurs in 31% of intimate partner relationships. So that's a third, a third of regular intimate partner relationships that we know of that we have. Approximately half of all female victims of domestic violence report some type of injury, but only 29% actually seek medical assistance. And children and families where one parent is abusing another, 50% of those children are also physically abused. And here's my last horrifying statistic. 93% of sex offenders describe themselves as religious and a significant number admit to intentionally targeting churches because of their views of grace and forgiveness. One yeah. in four women and one in six men have been abused in some way. So that is, is that saying that there's more abuse within people who are religious because the men know the women will forgive them, right? Or not report it? I'm not sure if it's causation you... or correlation. 93 Correlation. Yeah, 93% of sex offenders describe themselves as religious. Whether they are or not, they claim that label. Yeah. I mean, you know me, I could talk religion all day, and I think religion is is one of the biggest factors of, of the reason the world is crumbling at the moment. I will say this about my mom and dad. they He, he never hit her, but... And I know we're talking about actual physical abuse right now, but he never hit her, but they were married for 25 years and they were never happy. And she was never, well, she was never happy. And he abused her verbally all the time. And she fought back verbally, but never thought about leaving until 25 years later. I remember sitting around the table once when I was, I don't know, maybe 20 with my mom, my sister, and my two nieces and maybe a cousin. And I didn't know any of this. And they started talking about being sexually abused. And three out of four of them mentioned they had been sexually abused and somehow right raped. And I had no idea. And and I bet if you sat a group of 10 women down anywhere, you're going to see half of them in any situation, at least, have been sexually abused in some way. I will tell you, as a woman who regularly talks to women, Depending on the group, there are a couple of topics of conversation that inevitably come up. So if you're with other moms, the birth trauma, the birth story, 
always i you know right. i could tell you how many hours of labor all of my friends were in and ha who had cesareans and who didn't and who got the epi this is a thing that we talk about right if if it's not a mom group if it's just a general women's group at some point there's the conversation of the first time that you were sexualized uh, inappropriately and unwantedly and i will tell you most of us were around the age of my daughter the yeah. first time that that happened and then the stories just get worse and we all know it and we all share it and and it was mostly relatives i'm assuming no i no. i wouldn't want to do a statistical analysis of that i mean it but it it's it's just it's it's incredibly it's common, common. Yeah. and and you just you lose track i at one point Years ago, when I was commuting on the bus, I started keeping a list of all the times I was touched or groped or followed or whatever. And I just had to stop because it, it was just it was just such a common thing that it wasn't even worth. Chris, I got groped three days ago. What, what is it? I, Wednesday? I saw Monday. You post that about yeah, that. I mean, so like what, it just yeah. happens to us. And I just it's. And you're not one that wouldn't say something back. So imagine yeah, how it happens to women who never would talk back to anybody. I will tell you, one of the first times I got groped on a bus, I turned around and I, he slid his hand up my skirt and I moved and turned around and cursed. And the bus driver pulled over and kicked me off the bus for using foul language. Yeah, I, exactly. I was 14. Which is it, which illustrates why women don't always report rapes, talk back confront their attackers, that kind of thing. So when people say that bullshit, you know, if, if women would only, you know, speak up, they don't speak up for reasons. There are very valid reasons why women don't speak up. Part of what really got, part of what really got me about this movie was as a gay man who came out like 40 years ago now, you know, I have my own trauma to deal with from being gay uh, in the early 60s and 70s and not being able to be myself, but I came out of it. Um, I still feel that public situations are dangerous for me all the time. And I've been not only out, but an activist and a loud mouth for many, many years. And seeing this movie and, I, and with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and all these other things that are happening to women right now, women around me, women I know, I feel like, oh my God, how are we leaving? How did I get here? And I feel relatively safe. I, I do feel danger in almost every situation, but I can control it. And I don't think a lot of that danger is real to me. I think a lot of it is past trauma that is just still in my head. But the danger to women in 2023, and it's getting worse day by day, I just think, my God, how did I get here? And they're still going through this. It, it's, it's awful. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's okay. I'm just crying. It's... <laughs> I've, I've cried so much in the last two days. Yeah, it feels unfair that women who have been fighting this fight a lot longer than gay people have been fighting this fight are now, and who knows, it probably will happen to get, it happen to other people too, but, you know, are now sliding so far back and it's starting to look like this faction of, I'm just going to go with America, uh, can win. Because they're they put legis they put politicians and legislators in place that who don't care what the pu public thinks. So when you talk about oh the public thinks this, who the fuck cares what the public thinks if a small majority of legislators can put these laws in place and the Supreme Court can overturn women's rights, and it's just going to keep going on until hopefully something changes. But 
That's why I, I think I mentioned this when we talked earlier uh, on another date. I, I'm just constantly looking now at women's movies and books and 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 interviews and stories because I'm just kind of enraptured by the way women are trying to fight back and and worried about whether they can be successful. So as I I watched this movie sitting here at my desk with my headphones and then I had to like get up and go sit in that chair over there. I <laughs> I don't think you can tell because it's kind of far back, but the book that is sitting on the table next to that my crying chair over there is Lillian Faderman's Woman. Oh no. <laughs> and I like on the one hand I know that a lot of what is in Lillian Faderman's book, Woman, the History of American Dream or the, yeah. American Idea or whatever American Idea, yeah, yeah. Is, is a lot of depressing shit. But then I remember that you and I interviewed her for that other podcast that we do, mm-hmm. and she was optimistic. And so I am hoping that I can take- I'm still op- trying to get past that. <laughs> optimism from Lillian, who has lived a lot longer than I have and has seen a lot more- that I'm, I, if she can be optimistic, maybe I can be optimistic too. And I, I guess that's kind of where I have to, I have to stop, you know, that train of thought because otherwise I don't know what else to do. I know, I know. But uh, I can stop this train of thought by saying, see this movie because you will be truly inspired okay. by okay, the power so of these women. <laughs> let's let's do our our final thought wrap up here. So, Chris, was this book and was this movie worth your time? <laughs> I, I would say I, the book is good, but I would say see the movie. I don't think you need to read the book. They're so similar that it's not important enough to read to do both. And the book, like I said, is difficult, at least for me, mm-hmm. was difficult to get through because of the names and the and the wording and all that. The movie, you will not regret it. I agree. I, I think the book was good. I do think the book was slow. And, slow, very slow. Yeah, and and at one point I was like, "Oh my God, stop talking and just do something," <laughs> yeah, I know, which yeah. I know was part of it, right? You know, but like, right. I don't know about you, but I have to be in a very specific frame of mind to just sit and really talk, and then get semantical, and then challenge, yeah, and then yeah. talk more and talk. Eventually, I I need to do something. I need action. So. I got I was frustrated and I was scared that they were going to do nothing, which, like I said, was like, yeah. they can't possibly do nothing Um. anyway. So. So, yes, I agree with you. The movie is phenomenal. It's so good. It is so well made. It is so well acted. It's beautifully shot. The soundtrack was fine. They had a couple of like weird dongs at a couple points. I was like, this feels a little horror movie esque and I'm not sure about it, but but like the singing was really good and it felt really authentic and it just, it felt it, it and it was optimistic. So yes, you will right, cry. Right. You will definitely cry, I think, but it you will cry in celebration is what you will. Well, you know, there's well, all, you will also cry in emotional trauma, but I, you'll at the end you'll cry in celebration. And I'll say, you know, like we don't see the trauma. We just see the aftermath of it of a lot of times. And that is still very, very triggering. The three-year-old with the venereal disease because oh, of her yeah, rape, yeah. crying to her mom and just saying, I hurt, but you know, like, oh, she doesn't yeah. know what I just, that you, was I, awful. I can't like, I have a daughter who I, I just, I just, I just, yeah, the other it. one was, and they explained this in the book and they just sh- kind of showed it in the movie. And I knew it because of what I had read in the book. The woman who had the false teeth and the reason she had the false teeth was when she was sexually raped by a man. 
he put his hand over her mouth so harshly that it broke all her teeth. So she woke up with a mouthful of of broken teeth and blood as well as right. her body. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but I I it feels weird to say watch this movie. It's so traumatic. Everybody should be tra- traumatized. But I do think that it is important and thankfully it it is optimistic at the end and and I would say it's optimistic all the way through because despite what these women and I don't usually recommend movies that are just like you're going to be depressed. I don't do that. This movie I highly recommend because even though there is a lot of heavy duty trauma in this movie, every step of the way the women are fighting their way out of it. Every step. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and I, I think it should have won. If Woman King couldn't win the Oscar, then and and it didn't, and it didn't even get nominated. I haven't seen that yet. Oh my god! But this movie should have won the Oscar. What 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 did win the Oscar? Do you even remember? Um, it was only a month ago. I know we never do remember, do we? <laughs> it's um, such a big deal, and then we, we and then we never remember. Forget. Hold on, I'm gonna look it up because now I'm super curious. It was Top Gun. Watch it was Top Gun. Oh, it Every, was, uh, oh, everything, everything everywhere, everywhere, all at once. That. <laughs> that was a good movie. That was yeah. a really good movie. Okay, yeah. maybe. But the director, the... this one should have won more than just oh, a yeah, yeah. play. It yeah. should have won more. So yeah. for sure, for sure. But I liked what you did. You Did you read or did you see? Cause I, did you watch the Oscars? And I, I didn't remember no. it from seeing it. But uh, Sarah Polly, when she got her award, she goes something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm so glad the Academy wasn't. Uh, repulsed by uh, a movie of women talking and those two words being very close together, women and talking. Mm -hmm. So she's definitely, you know, a a female activist. And obviously this movie proves it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Well, I think we've ended, right? I think think that is it. I was going to say there was one actress who was in in a Star Trek episode that was my little fun trivia, but it's fine. Well, what's you know what's interesting about this movie too is Rooney Mara, who plays Ona, mm-hmm. was the co-star in Carol, which we're gonna do this summer. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. And you and I did Nomadland, which had had Francis McDormand. Right. So we're just yeah. So whatever is in Carol, we're gonna have to find some some know, connective huh? tissue to the next one. So yeah, I'm gonna so, have to look up the story about August Winter. I didn't know her or their story. Their story, yeah. So thank you for listening to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. If you would like to hear Chris and I talk about another depressing movie, which was Brokeback Mountain, <laughs> you can. But we also talked about Arrival. Actually, Arrival was kind of depressing too. <laughs> but we but we also talked about Love Simon. At least something else that was just said that I only want to talk about depressing movies. Is that what you're saying? No, no. Um, But we have talked about important movies. Yes, important movies. But also, you know, there's almost 100 episodes, past episodes at this point now. So you can go back and listen if you are so inclined. You can find all that information about past episodes and how you can support the show on Patreon, buy us a coffee, or better yet, rating and writing little reviewy things and telling your friends to listen you can find more information at kmmamedia.com and yes we are also on facebook and we are on twitter and i am on instagram and chris is yeah (laughs) and tiktok as well and uh chris is also on instagram and also on facebook and chris and i do another podcast together called it's a queer thing that has two episodes a month and you can find out that information also still actually over at kmmamedia.com 
So check it out. And Chris, thank you so much. I'm so glad we did this. I'm yeah. I'm really glad. I will say yes. Now I've now that we're done. Yeah. And I, and I only <laughs> I cried agree. once yeah. during this recording. Yeah, so, me too, so I'm I'm glad. Thank watch you. Watch this so movie. Much. Definitely everybody should go watch the movie. Okay. I'll talk to you All later. Right. Okay. Bye.